Things Connected podcast. This is Jared Hocking. Well, I know I might say this often, but I am especially excited to bring you today's episode. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, who is largely, if not entirely, responsible for uncovering the Flint water crisis and exposing the fecklessness and impropriety of government officials there. As you'll hear in this conversation, the lessons that came out of that crisis continue to be especially relevant today. Dr. Mona is the director of the Pediatric Residency Program at Hurley Medical Center, which is associated with Michigan State University and based in Flint, Michigan. In 2016, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, and for good reason. She is the author of the book, What the Eyes Don't See, which was named to the New York Times 100 Most Notable Books of the Year in 2018. What the Eyes Don't See is an excellent book and details the crisis and her involvement exposing it, but also intersperses history of Flint and history of discriminatory and racist policies that brought about the situation. It's also a story of activism and bravery and a story of her and her family's immigration to America from Iraq. We discuss in this conversation not only what factors gave rise to the Flint water crisis and what we can learn from it, but also her role as an activist and whistleblower and how this provides an example to others seeking to make change, the invisible forces, particularly policies that shape the crisis and shape our society, how anti-democratic laws directly precipitated this crisis, the dark age of science we are living through and its implications, the state of environmental injustice in Michigan and America, the resilience of Flint and its people, emerging research on epigenetics and adverse childhood events and how childhood trauma from poverty and racism can rewrite children's DNA, and many other topics. Dr. Mona really is an inspiration for us all and demonstrates how much of a difference one person who cares a lot can make. She is also a shining example of how America is made better by welcoming immigrant families. I am sure you will enjoy this conversation and I welcome your feedback. And now I bring you Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, who is, this is just surreal. She is a hero in my eyes. You're a hero to me, Dr. Mona, and the eyes of many residents in Flint, especially their children. So thank you, Dr. Mona, so much for joining me on the podcast. Jared, it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you too. And I'm happy that Dr. Mohai put us in touch. Well, it, and it's just rare that you get to speak with one of your your heroes. So thank you oh, for doing thank this. Thank you. Thank you. So although most of our listeners will be familiar with the Flint water crisis, likely not all of them will have read your book and know the account of what happened and, and your involvement. What our listeners will likely know is that this crisis has resulted in thousands of residents and countless children being poisoned with lead-tainted water, really as a result of government inaction and arrogance and acts of self-preservation. And it was only because of your bravery and smarts and commitment to science that motivated the government to act. So with the benefit of hindsight now, what stands out to you about why this crisis happened and what other governments other activists and the general public can learn from it? Jared, that's a great question. And, you know, so many folks continue to ask that question. 
you know, like, you know, why did this happen? You know, what are the lessons that, that we need to learn from this really emblematic public health and environmental injustice? Um, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? So, you know, there's still ongoing efforts to actually figure out what happened because we don't know. Like, you know, why wasn't this water treated properly? Like, we, we still fundamentally don't have some of the answers to the why this happened. Um, and that's why the Flint story is not over because the efforts at the accountability at, at getting to who did what and who knew what when are, are still unknown. And, and for many folks in Flint, this, this justice denied feels so much like justice delayed. Um, but there are some big lessons that, that Flint has learned. And these lessons that Flint has learned are so applicable to today um, where we are as a nation. Uh, I, I think of maybe like four big lessons. One is, um, you know, we have to have good governance. You know, Flint is an example where where state leadership specifically f- failed and, and did not value public health. Uh, Flint is also an example of what happens when you disinvest in, in public health infrastructure and safe drinking water is part of that, uh, as well as surveillance systems and public health capacity. And we've had this longstanding um, cuts and uh, disinvestment and really due to kind of austerity driven measures and attacks on big government that has that had left Flint in this really state of disarray that was unable to um, to kind of prevent this crisis nor handle it appropriately. Uh, so that's this, the second lesson that we learned in Flint. The third lesson is that of um, the need to respect science and scientists. And I don't think that could be a more applicable lesson lesson today in, in, in our current pandemic. Um, and the fourth big lesson um, that, that Flint has has taught us is, is the issue of disparities, of, of environmental injustice, of, of who bears the burden of these kinds of catastrophes. Um, you know, Flint what happened in Flint never would have happened in a richer or a wider community. And, and currently in this public health crisis, which was once touted as the great equalizer, it is not. Once again, it continues to be, um, you know, to fall on the shoulders of predominantly poor and predominantly people of color. Um, so those, I think, are like the four big lessons of this water crisis is that we have to have strong government. We have to, that values public health. We have to um, invest in proactively in prevention and public health infrastructure. We need to respect science and we need to look at equity issues. Um, so four kind of big lessons that are absolutely applicable today and to really all kind of environmental and public health issues. Mm, so, so true and sad. And actually that sparks in my mind, I was planning on writing, I haven't written it yet, but I was writing this piece about how this libertarian attitude and and conservative ideals of small government actually precipitated the past three major crises in in our country, including this one and including the the financial crisis, because, you know, government is one of those things where people like to criticize it and say we need small government until it doesn't meet the the needs of its its citizens. And, And when we you know, the only centralized entity that can respond to a public health crisis of this kind is is good government. Well, you were you were very in the, in that first answer I think you left some things out or or you were very um pragmatic in terms of speaking about the the role of the self-preservation and denialism that is so clear and and honestly just shocking and and appalling in this book. So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, there, there were efforts just at every level of the state and local officials to deny what was happening, to 
muddy the waters with and, and to criticize you, state officials came out with statements saying that you were an unfortunate researcher, that you were causing near hysteria, that you were, you know, your science was was inaccurate, that you were practicing pseudoscience. And, and this actually is preceded by, as you mentioned, another crisis, which is far less known, the Washington, D.C. crisis mm-hmm. that played out in an even just more stark way where your collaborator, Mark Edwards, actually, um, when he first reported high levels of, of lead to the water utility his funding was removed and he was cut off from access to monitoring data. And it was just an act of censorship and an act of denial and, and self-preservation. And this reminds me of, you know, there's other cases like this. One that's very close to home for both of us is the case of the Larry Nassar, where over mm-hmm. um, where over decades, many officials at Michigan State University knew about his practices and the reports and did nothing about it and, and tried to hide it. So what do you think explains this behavior, this appalling behavior? And, and why is it that officials are more inclined to cover up uncomfortable truths than to bring them to light and do something about them? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I also want to touch on what you 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 mentioned earlier in regards to um, efforts at austerity and, and attacks the government. Um, and I, I think that's that's so much the, the pre-existing condition that kind of helped create the Flint water crisis, but also this kind of current pandemic, you know, there have been deliberate and organized and coordinated and well-funded efforts to minimize the role of government, to minimize the role of regulations, um, to make government smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and and then that makes you wonder then, you know, what's a public good? Like what's what's government there for, if not to be able to deliver safe drinking water um, or clean air or kind of basic public health infrastructure. And when, and now we see the consequences of, of the, those really decades long efforts at austerity. And I, I wouldn't say it's entirely kind of libertarian driven. Um, I just read a great book called the triumph of doubt by David Michaels, who's the, um, a physician epidemiologist, former director of OSHA, who's who writes about this kind of playbook that has been um, uh, followed by industries, you know, f- for for decades on their you know deliberate work to weaken regulations for the benefit of corporate interests and profit, uh, starting with, for example, the sugar industry, but also the lead industry and the tobacco industry and asbestos and and PFAS and so on. So these are well-funded efforts to instill doubt in science, uh, to instill doubt in in facts and and data for the sole benefit of preserving their self-interest and and maximizing their profits. Um, So I don't think that we're against an ideology here. I think what we are up against are deep pockets of people who want to, like you said, um, preserve their profits and and preserve their power that they have in society. Um, there's a line in my book that- But, kind of, but in, this case, it, in this case, it wasn't even about, I mean, the act of switching the water supply was about profits, but at any given point in time, someone- an official could have come out and said when this was coming to to be known that yes we we have a problem and it doesn't they don't lose anything i mean maybe maybe in their eyes they could lose something and that they could be blamed or lose their job because of something mm-hmm. that happened is is that where this is coming from i mean pointing out a problem and pointing out that something needs to be done is not in, in this case certainly was not about profits it was it was about self-preservation what what motivated yeah that? so 
obviously I, I, I was not in those people's shoes. Um, so I don't, I don't know why more wasn't done, but so many folks have asked why weren't there more whistleblowers? Why weren't there more people in these governmental agencies speaking up and, and raising alarm bells when there were so many red flags that were happening in this water crisis? Um, some of the investigations that, that have been done and, and have been concluded, um, point to the, um, the culture at these bureaucracies, specifically the governor's task force report, um, looked um, specifically at the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality at that time, the Office of Drinking Water, which um, had lost significant capacity and expertise um, over those kind of years of austerity and had become more of a rubber, rubber stamped minimal compliance permit granting bureaucracy. Um, rather than what fundamentally they were there for, to, or should have been there for, for public health uh, promotion um, and environmental protection. So one of the one of the actual recommendations was that these folks in these departments had to take like public health 101 to remind them that hey, your n- job is not to like rubber stamp things and aim mm-hmm. for kind of minimal compliance, but really it, you know it, it should be this this bigger principle and this bigger philosophy. So a lot of the criticisms and investigations so far as to why this was happened and why so many folks turned the other way and deliberately, for example, hid data or cover up data or manipulated data um, was kind of this, this, um, this culture. And I think that was specifically mentioned these cultures in this department um, that, that didn't really care about the people that they were serving. And I think we're kind of skirting around the issue here. Um, We have to call out the racism. Um, So, you know, this is part of what environmental injustice is all about. Uh, You know, there's a line that somebody from the EPA said, you know, the people, this is a city... Uh, not worth going out on a limb for like, why? Cause it's not your kids. Like, you, you know, your family mm-hmm. doesn't live there. They don't look like there. Um, when folks at the, um, the state, when the EPA finally found out that the, that the state folks weren't using corrosion control, um, you know, they they try to get them to use corrosion control and somebody in the office of drinking water said, but who's drinking this water anyways? Like, you know, what kind of response is that? Like, just because it's not you and your children. Um, so I think we cannot disregard the role of racism, um, of systemic racism, of institutional racism in, in this issue. And, and that's one of the reasons that my book is called What the Eyes Don't See. Um, sure, it's about kind of, we don't see lead and water, and we, and we don't see the effects of lead right away. And like, I didn't see that diagnosis right away. But it's by and large, um, a story about a people, a place and a problem that folks choose not to see. And even when they saw, they closed their eyes and they, they turned the other way. Um, so what, you know, how do we make folks in these agencies and these bureaucracies and these institutions care, have empathy, have understanding um, of the folks that, you know, that, you know, they're privileged to, to work for. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one of the most galling examples of that, that came out after, I believe after the crisis, which you highlight is that at the same time that Brad Warfel, the spokesman for the Michigan water quality department, Mm -hmm. At the same time that he was putting out statements saying there's no issues with the water, Dr. Mona Atisha Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. sparking this hysteria. Mm -hmm. They were drinking. Mm -hmm. They had ordered Mm -hmm. cooler water to -hmm. protect themselves for a largely, if not entirely, white staff. And that, I mean, that's just so emblematic. It's like they are communicating to the the largely black, largely largely poor citizens that it's okay to continue drinking lead-tainted water. Uh, 
drinking that water while they were protecting themselves. I mean, that is just, you know, that, that, that is a microcosm of the whole thing. Well, so also another thing on this topic about these invisible forces that you point out is that there are a lot of villains in the story. Many people Mm -hmm. look the other way. Many many Mm -hmm. people stop caring about Flint and its kids. While changes have been brought, charges have been brought against some of the individuals who are culpable, the real villains are harder to see. The real villains mm-hmm. are the ongoing effects of racism, inequality, greed, anti-intellectualism, and even laissez-faire neoliberal capitalism. How do you think these invisible villains played a central role in the crisis? Yeah, I, you know, uh, so many folks throughout um, these last few years have asked me to to name the culprits, like who should go in jail, who should be prosecuted. Um, And obviously there were people at fault. There were many, many people at fault that created this crisis. A crisis of this scale does not happen, you know, without multiple, multiple folks that were involved. However, um, you know, the whole kind of point of my story is that, you know, these are, this is not a unique story. Um, You know, the the, the story of Flint's not unique. It's a story of kind of injustices that are happening all over the place. Um, And they're they're often being driven by these same villains that you just mentioned. Um, And once again, you know, the villains of racism, we talked a little bit about that. Um, But, you know, we also like, you know, the reason that this water crisis happened, one could argue, is because of kind of uh, racist practices that, you know, left the city, um, you know, poor and uh, with a, a decrease in their population um, because of things like racist real estate practices and redlining and lost regionalization and um, all these things that created this really poor and predominantly minority and segregated community. And these were historic practices that used to be legal and not legal and even current practices. Um, so that has a, you know, a role to play. Um, inequality, greed. Oh my God. That, that, that's why the history of Flint is so important. You know, here's uh, here's a story where uh, the birthplace of manufacturing of cars, and then that the that you know that General Motors left and abandoned their birthplace because of you know profits elsewhere and, and you know and saving money elsewhere and doing different things. Um, so there's there's a lot of these forces that that have really crippled so many of our communities. I mean, you could say the same thing about Cleveland or Pittsburgh or all these other, many other post-manufacturing Rust Belt communities that have suffered the same kind of long-standing injustices. Um, so we can't just say that, you know, this crisis happened because of these people. Yeah, it happened because of these people, but it also happened because of these historic and systemic structures that have been put in place that that prioritize certain people and that prioritize um, the power and and the privilege of those individuals rather than this kind of more holistic approach that kind of um, you know that allows for example for for the education systems to to not be dependent on tax bases and you know and public health and policing and all these different things not not to be supported by um, a dwindling community. community. So a, a lot can be traced back to these policies that have that created these situations. And when you look at it in that way, you realize that the Flint water crisis kind of could have been predicted. It could have been anticipated. Flint was in crisis for decades before our water crisis. Um, you know, Flint was in crisis because of uh, numerous policies that were put into place to keep the city poor and and segregated 
and unfunded with a crumbling education system and no grocery stores. And the list goes on and on of, of deliberate things that happened that, that created this situation that put us into this near bankruptcy state that then took away our democracy with emergency management. And that's a completely different story um, or, you know, obviously related and a big part of the story. Um, but, but the bottom line is that it could have been predicted that, you know, these things, these crises that happen do not happen overnight. We need to kind of peel that onion back and look at the history uh, only when we understand the history uh, and the complexities and the intersectionalities. Do we really understand where, where we are? And then are we then only able to move forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I feel like you do such a great job of that in in this book. It, it really it's not just an account of what happened in Flint in, in your involvement, but there's many other threads that you pull out, like, as you mentioned, the social policies that resulted in the, the history of Flint and, and the history of GM abandoning the city. And the, you know, it also, at a very personal level, your your story as, as an activist and your immigrant family making this country a much better place and your commitment to activism. So th- this is, yeah, th- that's what I really loved about it is that you weave all these different pieces in a very elegant way. But but at its core, it really is about that un- uncovering what happened and, and a commitment to a, a bravery to see it through and, until action was taken. And yeah, I mean, it just strikes me, we're talking about these invisible things or, or that are very vi- visible for the people who are affected, you know, it, and we've been talking about environmental justice. And I didn't know, I, I just took my first environmental justice class this past year with Dr. Mohai. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked at the level of inequality with which, you know, environmental justice at its as its core is really the meaningful, or I'm sorry, the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people mm-hmm. in environmental justice decisions. And really, no, no, the way that I think of it is that no one person or no one group should share a disproportionate burden of environmental harms. And mm-hmm. the energy that we use to, you know, that wherever you and I live in Michigan is likely coming from a particular source. And we all benefit from that. But certain communities are receiving not as much benefit because they're not using as much energy, but they're receiving so many health consequences because right. of pollution and, and toxic waste. There was, we we know about the uh, report, I think it was in the early 80s that found that other independent of all their factors, race is the most predictive factor of whether someone lives yeah. near a toxic waste site, not educational attainment, not right. class or, right. or anything else. Right. And but we, we were talking just now about these kind of invisible things, but they are not invisible to the people who are, are experiencing them. You know, we and it's kind of these these seismic shifts in policy that have repercussions over time, you know, the or, or the the recent protest movement with Black Lives Matter and and what happened in response to George Floyd did not happen in a micro in in a you know in a vacuum. It, as you were saying, it's a result of decades of racist oppression in the form of policies, in the form of discriminatory housing practices, discriminatory employment practices, and and all these things need to be addressed for us to really move towards a more um, equitable society. So. That being said, I wanted to go back, as you mentioned, the Emergency Manager Act. And then this is another huge issue, which is the erosion of democ- democracy and the erosion of democratic norms mm-hmm. in our society. So so tell us what, what the Emergency Manager Act was and how did that really directly precipitate the Flint water crisis? 
Yeah, so the Emergency Manager Act um, was uh, passed in the Michigan State Legislature um, against the political will of the people of Michigan. Um, So there was a previous emergency manager uh, law and through statewide ballot that was um, rescinded, but our gerrymandered legislature tweaked it a little bit and put it back on the book. So at its onset, it was against the will of the people and um, passed by one of the most gerrymandered legislatures in the entire country. Um, and so what that did is that it usurped local control, uh, local power, um, and uh, the financial emergency manager reported directly to the to the governor. And there was no uh, really role of a mayor or a city council or, or anything. And, and the goal of those emergency managers, which were appointed throughout our state, um, was, was austerity, was to save money and balance the books. So we had emergency managers in Detroit and, and Highland Park and um, Flint, obviously. And um, at one point, half of Michigan's African-American population was under emergency management um, compared to 2% of our white population. So if you just kind of take a step back and think about this, here's an unelected person making decisions for a community. That's not democracy. Um, that is absolutely not what America is all about. Uh, yet this was happening throughout our state. And, you know, they were, you know, cutting pensions and breaking contracts and selling off city resources and kind of the list goes on of, of what they were doing. Um, and there was no accountability. Uh, when the emergency manager finally testified at a congressional oversight hearing, he was asked by, God bless him, um, Elijah Cummings, why, you know, why didn't you, um, why didn't you listen to the people? Like they were, you know, complaining and, you know, they were loud and they were sharing all these concerns with the water. Why didn't you listen? And his response was basically, I didn't have to, I wasn't accountable to the people. I didn't have to listen to the people. You know, I had to, you know, I didn't report to them. Um, and this is just, just so telling and, and just so egregious and, and so racist because it was very dis, disparate of, of who was then under emergency management. Um, so it was the purpo- purposeful kind of dismissal and denial of, of, of voices and of, of, you know, of people. And, you know, this is a crazy story, this, you know, this whole emergency management thing. Um, but it, it's really important because it's not, once again, it's not a unique story to Flint. Like there may not be like emergency managers in other communities right now, but there are many, many communities throughout this nation that have lost democracy. And, you know, the list goes on voter suppression, gerrymandering happening in other communities, mass incarceration, um, you know, taking away the rights of, of inmates to, to vote, like all these different things, um, voter ID laws, all these things are, are essentially the same. They're all other ways where where vo- voices of people are, are purposefully not being heard and, and as a lost accountability. Um, so it was, um, so Flint had a series of four emergency managers that started in 2011. And um, the emergency managers decided that to save money, because that was their job to save money, they would change our water source um, from the Great Lakes uh, that we used to buy through Detroit to the local Flint River until a new pipeline was to be built. So it was a temporary move um, kind of to save money because they were, you know, they said it was too expensive for us to continue um, buying our water from Detroit. Um, so that was made, uh, you know, as an emergency manager decision. Um, and then kind of the rest is history. Oh, man. So, so disheartening. And yeah, and, and you point out a couple of things. One is that after this initiative, the Emergency Manor Manager Act was rejected in Proposition 4, four yeah. in a referendum, 
or public act for rather, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. ideologues and legislator ignored mm-hmm. the voters and passed mm-hmm. the law again one month later. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this again here in Michigan with the mm-hmm. the gerrymandering act that you just mentioned, where mm-hmm. the conservatives, I, I am not up to date on what happened, but basically our state passed a democratic initiative to have public citizens or, or a committee, a neutral committee, draw the districts in our state rather than, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the conservatives basically tried to over, you know, override that or, or they, they, they ignored it in some way. So I I have to check. It's still happening. Yeah, it's still happening. So the, um, proposition, I think two in our last election, um, vowed to end gerrymandering and set up an independent commission to draw districts. Districts are drawn um, every 10 years with, with the numbers from the census. Um, so uh, that passed and it was an amazing effort. And uh, many there's been many lawsuits to try to undermine it, but those have all failed. So it is ongoing. So that Michigan will now have an independent uh, commission to draw up our districts. Uh, there is a great movie called Slay the Dragon. I absolutely recommend it. Um, the opening scenes are actually about the Flint water crisis um, and talks about gerrymandering and talks about emergency management. And then it goes on to be a movie about gerrymandering in general. Yeah. I mean, talk about an invisible force. This is, this couldn't be more, it couldn't have more relevance and more impact on how democracy and how our lives play out, but it's really hard to draw that direct connection. But if you have the districts centralized in a, in in the power to draw districts centralized in a very political system, then that's going, as, as we've seen, it just results in extremely lopsided and really anti-democratic met or, or results in yeah vote, voting districts that are completely anti-democratic and that's a, like an invisible force it's like we you know you can draw a through line from that decision to how mm-hmm. you get to things like the flint water crisis but people tend to look at the immediacy and but but those those things as you point out are really what we need to address. And it, it's truly galling to me. I mean, I I remember listening to that on the public radio and reading this part in your book and just being so angry. Like yeah. the fact that these people in the legislature, these people yeah. on the right think that they know better than yeah. the public citizens who have passed a referendum. And, right. and isn't this true that um, the city council yeah, voted chose to, very or to go voted. back to. Yep, they voted to go back to the Great Lakes and the emergency managers very that. early on. Yep, like yep. in in April 2014, maybe yep. some, somewhere around yep. there. Yep. And yeah, and and it was rejected because of this anti democratic measure. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know it's 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 unnerving. So um, this movie Slay the Dragon is just it's so eye opening about kind of the the. Um, the manipulation of our districts throughout the country and how this, you know, these, these were invisible undercover efforts, but they were deliberate. Like this was the intent of, uh, of folks to draw these districts in a way um, where even if you vote for more Democrats, more Republicans get elected into office. Like it's, it's amazing. So my daughter who's um, 13 watched this movie and she's like, she, she couldn't, she's like, mom, is this legal? Like, how did this happen? Like, how, are you kidding me? So like, even to the very young, um, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and I, and it shouldn't be invisible. And I'm glad like that I wrote about it in this book and I'm glad that there's movies about it, but more people need to be aware of the consequences of these efforts to undermine our democracy. Yeah. So what would you say to 
everyday citizens listening to this about what they can do to make sure these type of things don't don't happen because it can be very dispiriting. It can be, you know, de- defeating to think that you go out and vote and you do your part, or maybe you even organize within your community. And then someone with much more power than you, who's, who's been, you know, been elected can just overturn that. So how, how do you address that? Or what would you say to some, uh, yeah, normal I, citizen? You know, there's so much to be hopeful about. And as much as kind of my book and the story of Flint is this story of this crisis, this kind of, you know, preventable public health crisis, this crime committed with absolute indifference against some of the most vulnerable people in this country. It's also this story, but in a sense, a playbook of how to resist the status quo and how to create change in your communities. So in Flint, like this unexpected ragtag team of folks came together and stood up and said, no, you know, you know, said, no, we can do better on behalf of our children. And, and we fought back and, and change happened. Um, and that's also the story of kind of um, the, the, the soon to be end of gerrymandering in Michigan. It started out by a young girl. Gosh, I, I don't know how old she was probably like in her twenties who said, Hey, this is really weird. Like why are our districts so weird? Why do we keep voting for more Democrats and more Republicans um, are, are taking office? And she organized this ballot campaign by herself, not funded by any party or anything. And she won. Um, and this, this thing passed. So, um, what I can, what I hope to impart to people is that you do not have to stay silent. You do not have to keep your eyes closed. You you do not have to, you know, accept the status quo as it is. Um, here are two examples where, you know, David versus Goliath examples of the underdogs who um, have changed, who have changed not only the status quo, but really have sent ripple acro- effects across our nation. Uh, so there's a lot of good things happening. I think the most important thing is you know, to keep our eyes open. So once again, the book is what the eyes don't see. Uh, you know, if people's eyes were closed. We need to be woke. You know, we need to stay awake to these things. We need to mm-hmm. stay informed. We need to read the newspaper. We need to subscribe to newspapers. We need to support journalists. We need to listen to podcasts. We need to be aware of all these different issues. Um, and awareness is kind of the first step, but we also need to take action. And taking action can be, you know, a, a variety of different things. It could be donating to a cause or a campaign or an issue. It could be kind of physically like being involved in one of these efforts. It could be organizing something. It could be running for office. It could be just voting. Um, So there's a lot of ways that we can kind of be civically engaged, hold folks accountable, um, but it definitely starts with kind of awareness. Absolutely. And yeah, I was, I was very conscientious of the fact that we were talking mostly about things that were bad and, and negative, but one, as you said, one very positive thing that came through to me was your story just embodies how much one person can make a difference when they even even as you said in in you know intimidation tactics by the government and and really you know everything standing in your way to make that difference you took that role as a, a whistleblower and really saw it uh, it through and you talked about how this is not this wasn't just um you know isolated this was has has been in your past how you when you when you were just in high school you within your community, um, organized efforts to shut down a toxic incinerator that was, was close to the um, elementary school. So mm-hmm. certainly very inspiring in that regard. And, and I think that it's such an important message that one person can make a difference and, and they should, because if not you, if not now, then, then who else? And if, you know, that's all you can do, all you can do is what you can control. And, and I think people tend to forget that, 
you know, one, one person really can make a difference. So with that in mind, for someone who is inclined towards activism or sees problems within their community or the larger world that they're passionate about, maybe, maybe you touched on this just now, but is there any specific advice you would, you would give them? Yeah. So, um, you know, inscribed in the beginning of the book is one of my favorite quotes from, from another doctor who said, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So that's Dr. Seuss. But, you know, you're right. Like, you know, one person can absolutely make a tremendous difference. But, you know, my story and my book isn't about one person. It's about a team. Um, it is a testament to the idea that individuals um, can can come together and, and truly make a difference. So if there is kind of one bit of advice that I would give to people is, is um, or two, but they're related, is first find your passion. Well, you know, what keeps you up at night? And it's hard right now because I think there's so many things that keep so many people up at night. There's so many injustices happening right now. But what is your driver? Is it water quality or reproductive rights or immigration or, uh, you know, uh, healthcare for all, whatever? Like find your passion. What is your thing? Um, and then find your village, find your team. Uh, so often we, you know, we feel that as advocates and activists that we are carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. And what what I learned throughout this whole process is that, hey, there's so many people that also care about the same things that I care about. And guess what? They're not like the exact same kind of profession like me, or they didn't go to the same kind of school as me. Like they're all kinds of different people that, that come together. Like I never would have thought before this water crisis that like, oh my God, water engineers care about kids as much as I care about kids. And, and so do social workers and so do teachers and so do journalists and so do scientists and so many do other people. Um, so step out of your boxes, step out of your conference spaces, make friends with all kinds of people and find your peeps, find your village. Because when you are doing this work together, it is fun and you are able to accomplish so much more. That's great. And yeah, another thing there too, is that you, you gave people a chance who had a certain reputation publicly and you were able to see through that. You were able to put that aside and and judge for yourself. And I'm speaking about your collaborator, Mark Edwards, who, you know, was a little bit maligned because of some, some of his tactics. And you said, you know, let me, let me see for myself that this, this is someone who is committed to the same cause that I am and is actually working on the same thing. And if you would have just said, well, I, I trust what, you know, mm-hmm. other people are saying, he's radioactive. I'll stay away from him. Then you wouldn't maybe have, oh, who yeah. knows what have, would have happened, but you were able. Um, and obviously I, th- I think this comes through in different ways about the type of person you are, but I think that's really important too, is that set aside, you know, what mm-hmm. you've heard and, and that cut those, those rumors, that gossip. So speaking about Mark, my, my next question is related to him. So he wrote a piece in 2019 in which he said that this this crisis kind of embodies the fact that we're in a dark age of science. And I think in large part, your your story is not just a story about bravery and heroism and, and whistleblowing, but it's also a story about the importance of, of science and doing science right and, and the power of science. And I just, before this, this call, I was looking at the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, their mm-hmm. website, and they have over 140 cases, uh, full-length articles at the fe- only at the federal level in the current federal administration where they say that uh, science has yeah. been censored or, yeah. you know, anti-science attacks, yeah. in- including censorship of science, uh, scientists at the EPA, including recently removing language referring to COVID-19 from certain government websites. 
uh, ignoring the science on toxic chemicals and pesticides and, and so on. And, and this is another, you know, invisible thing that is happening that is affecting people's lives. So what worries you about this this moment that do you consider it a, a dark age of science? Have you seen evidence of that? And what do you think the the implications might be as, as this becomes borne out? Oh, absolutely. We are in this bizarro state of science denial and attacks um, on common sense science and scientists. I think kind of before Flint, we saw, you know, bits of this with the anti-vaccine movement. Um, and then, you know, Flint was this outright denial also of kind of common sense science of water treatment, but also how you, um, how, how folks in power can attack scientists. And then where we are right now um, in this current administration is um, an outright uh, open um, denial of science uh, and basically um, to, to, to benefit corporate interests. Um, at the EPA, we were seeing kind of a dismantling of science advisory boards, um, of science-based recommendations. Um, we're even saying that, hey, a little bit of radiation is okay, and that this brain poison and, you know, this toxic chemical pesticide is okay. Uh, so there's example after example that have been documented on how we've denied science. Um, and where we are currently in this pandemic is also a state of science denial, a disrespect of uh, doctors um, who voice concerns and of kind of basic public health science and epidemiological science. Um, so it is a frightening time that we are in right now as a nation in regards to science. Um, we need to be driven by science. Uh, our policies need to kind of be based on facts and, uh, and, and really leaning on the expertise of those who know this, these content areas. And unfortunately, that's not where we are. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful for kind of uh, um, an awakening and hopefully a, a new administration that, that goes back to embracing science. Um, and it's absolutely not where it is right now. I had the honor of being part of the um, March for Science. I was the inaugural co-chair with Bill Nye, the science guy, which is amazing to be with Bill Nye, um, the science guy. But, um, you know, my I, I, I felt that it was really critically important for, for me as a physician, as a scientist, to be part of this movement, to to, to elevate the role of science, to, to highlight the fact that we are disavowing science, um, but also in, to encourage scientists to get out of their comfort zones. So so often in academia and in, in medicine, um, academics, uh, you know, we're really comfortable in our ivory towers and our classrooms and our hospitals and our clinics and our labs. And we fail to engage in the public discourse. And we fail to kind of, you know, meet with policymakers or and we fail to share our science um, to audiences that are able to digest our science. Um, you know, one example is when I was writing this book, like I had to figure out who was my audience. Like I could have easily written like a sciencey public health academic kind of book, but I'm like, hey, I don't want I don't want that to be my only audience. I want to write a layperson book. I want everybody to be able to understand these things. Um, so we need more scientists as well. Like I put more part of the blame on us to 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 get out into these uncomfortable spaces and to write things like op-eds and you know opinion pieces and and layperson articles and be on TV and talk shows and late night and what have you um, to share the science. Uh, I I see it more now in the pandemic. It's been so wonderful to see so many people speaking up on behalf of science. 
Um, but it hasn't always been there. And we can't expect people to just like do this overnight. We have to do a better job um, in, in the education and the academia systems to train folks on how to communicate um, with non-scientists. Mm, I mean, yeah, as, as you said, frightening. And I think there, there's so much there to discuss and it, it really could, could deserve an hour long conversation, this, this topic in particular. But one thing that I thought about as you were talking about is the, this idea that came through in certain regards of American exceptionalism of it, it couldn't happen here. And, and you wanted to believe that it was, it was, it was obvious that you wanted to believe that it was just a mistake that, you know, these, these people were, you know, you were right in the middle of the Great Lakes region where the, you know, the, the largest supply of freshwater in the world, you wanted to believe that this could not happen here. And mm. there's still this degree of American exceptionalism that it could never happen here, that what happened in Nazi Germany or what happened in South Africa could, could never happen here. But the, the actuality is it is happening here. It's happening mm. right now. You know, the mm. fact that a, I was just listening. I just happened to listen before this to a conversation with Barry Weiss. So this is top of mind. But the fact that, you know, within the last two years, a a, a terrorist went into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. killed 13 people or 11 people in the name of anti-Semitism. It, it mm-hmm. is happening here. And mm-hmm. this is this this undermining of science. It happens slowly. Mm-hmm. But if given another four years, this administration will completely topple the American institutions like science that we hold in such regard and that are really the guardrails of a safe society. And so, so the second thing here that I want to communicate to people who are listening to this, who are either neutral or on the right is you have to take account of these things. And in the way that I see it, maybe I'm jaded, maybe I'm biased, but I don't see those politicians, those elected representatives on the left undermining de- democracy and science and really the well-being of our people in the same way as you said the the greed and the 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 connection with corporations and the the mm-hmm. pure self-interest and pure mm-hmm. self-preservation that happens with elected officials on on the right i i think does not happen to the same degree or the same you know frightening level that it happens on the left and and you wouldn't say you know there might be I, I don't know how many, I, I should have looked this up, actually. I don't know how many examples would have happened under the under the Obama administration that the Uni- Union of Concerned Scientists listed as attacks on science, but I can't imagine it's anywhere close to 140. And, you know, that that those things are so important. And, and largely the economic policy between these two is going to shake out pretty similarly and, and people's livelihoods are going to ideally go, you know, get for the better. But I, I'm just seeing more and more. I mean, that is associated with, you know, this anti-democratic, anti-science, um, really lack of concern for large groups of the population on, on the right is just so, so frightening. Um, so I'm I'm hoping in November we'll have a, a sea change on that. Yeah, I hope um, so. And um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not an expert here, but I think some of the invisible or not so invisible forces that have also led to the worsening of this is is our campaign finance rules um, and uh, the Hobby Lobby rules and different rules that enable, um, you know, the special interests to really purchase um, the policymakers. Uh, so I think we also have to kind of uncover like why we see these things happening. And I think that's one of the influences. Oh, absolutely. I actually wanted to mention this earlier, but two books in this realm, one of which I've read, the other I've read a pretty in-depth article about. The first is Jane Meyer wrote a book called Dark Money. Have you read Mm -hmm. that? No. Oh, that's a phenomenal read. It, It 
gets at this issue of how uh, oligarchs, plutocrats on the right, Mm -hmm. including the Koch brothers, um, have just totally established a system of plutocracy and bought out these institutions and the citizens united piece is just yeah just one of them it, it really opened yeah. the floodgates but it's it's eye-opening and yeah so yeah the, it, it the, just yeah the book i mentioned earlier um the triumph of doubt about dark money's influencing the influence and decreasing regulations it also gets at the Koch brothers as the funders of many of these anti-regulatory efforts so switching topics back to science for a second, so many interesting threads in this book, but one that sat with me for a while is this idea of how the social social determinants of health or what are now called for children, adverse childhood events, how they shape a child's outcomes and really in an intergenerational fashion, mm-hmm. even before they, you know, even, even before they have a self-concept. So you write... An increasing realization is that a child's endocrine genetic physiology can be altered and prolonged extreme and repetitive stress or trauma due to adverse childhood events such as poverty, racism, and violence violence can chronically activate stress hormones and reduce neural connections in the brain just at a time that a child's development when she needs to be growing new ones. And you talk about you know the the fact that the the concept of epigenetics that these uh, triggers environmental triggers can rewrite a child's DNA in a way that passes on these outcomes in an, in an intergenerational fashion. So, on this topic, is there any new research or or speaking more to this research that you want to share? And in your eyes, does this make it all the more imperative to address systemic issues like institutional racism and poverty? Absolutely. Um, I think what you shared, the kind of the, the science of early adversity on a child's entire life course trajectory is, is one of the most important things that is in the domain of pediatrics and public health right now is this growing recognition that the milieu of a child, um, whether it is nurturing or not, um, can really, in a very graded and predictable way, influence their entire life and 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 for generations to come. And when you truly understand that science, and and we're learning so much about the mechanisms of action, like you know the the endocrine pathway, what it does to hormones, the neurological pathway, how it Im- impacts the you know different neural connections, the genetic pathway, and and so forth, the immune system. Um, you know, we're learning more and more exactly pathophysiologically how this is happening. Um, and and so if we truly respect that science, that really gives us. Um, another sort of playbook on how to build systems that that support children and families and proactively rather than reactively. Um, and this is kind of fundamental to pediatrics and public health. And it, it really is, um, it always reminds me of my favorite quote, um, which kind of governs our work by Frederick Douglass, who 150 years ago said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. So if we understand the role of all these adversities and toxicities in the lives of children, it is so much easier to create safe places for them to grow up in, where there's access to healthy food and great schools and supportive parents and, and, and you know, living wage jobs and parental leave and healthcare, and the list goes on and on of what we need, what we know science tells us makes children ha- healthy, rather than continue to do what we're doing right now, which is repair broken men. Uh, our system of health and healthcare mm. is really designed as a sickness system where we take care of people after they're sick. We don't prevent them from getting sick. Um, so, you know, if we truly respect the science, um, then we can absolutely 
work at a system level to create those communities where where children can thrive and where there will be a tremendous return on investment of that work in, in early childhood. Uh, that's kind of what prompted me to write um, a piece uh, a little over a month ago in the New York Times. Um, they were they did a series called The America We Need. Um, so, you know, here we are kind of in this pandemic, in this kind of uh, time with, um, you know, uh, high, with the greater greater awareness of all these racial inequities and Black Lives Matter. Um, how do we how do we think about a new America? Like, what is the America that we need that will be more fair, more resilient, more just? You know, if, if we have this opportunity to rethink um, this country, which is not working for most people. Um, and so I wrote this piece um, and the title was called, I'm, I'm sick of asking children to be resilient. So, so much of my work is all at, at the individual level dealing with uh, or working with children um, and families who've already overcome or are in the midst of so many adversities as they are in Flint. Um, and rather than, you know, continuing to be so re reactive, how do we rebuild America? Be, you know, respecting this science to be a place that doesn't, um, you know, celebrate the exception, the exceptionalism of somebody who was able to overcome these adversities, but rather um, build a place where those adversities don't exist in the first place. So it is an absolute kind of rethinking of of how we should fundamentally care for each other and how our societies should be built. And if there ever was a time for us to kind of take a step back and see what's working and what's not working, um, I feel it is now. And that's kind of also what makes me really hopeful right now is, you know, we've been sharing these lessons of, of Flint for a few years now, but now the whole nation um, has, is experiencing some of these, these same lessons of these injustices, these gross disparities, these inequalities. Um, and I'm hopeful um, that we can kind of reemerge from this with greater empathy and a greater respect for science and public health to, to build these more resilient places rather than, um, you know, burden children with the need to be more resilient. That is so right. And absolutely, there's not enough recognition of, as you said, the need to strengthen our children and make sure that we're setting them up on the right path rather than taking top down or, or really inadequate measures. And, and a quote that I pulled out from that is you kind of just alluded to it, but there was a, a Rhodes scholar who you cite, who yeah. says that, um, don't be, you know, don't be proud of me that I overcame these yeah. immense obstacles, uh, be mad as hell that they exist in the first yeah. place. And if our, if our social policy could be based on that premise, I, I, I think, we would, you know, actually one, one, one quick thing, um, that I wrote about, I, I actually won a scholarship at my program in part because writing about this, are you familiar with the veil of ignorance by John Locke? Mm -mm. No. So the veil of ignorance is a genius thought experiment. It basically mm -hmm. asks us to consider what if we, if we were born into a society, which is, this is actually just like reality. If we were born into a society where we didn't know what our outcome would be. We didn't know what situation we would be born into. What kind of society would we want that to be? And the answer is so clear. The answer is we would want a society where all outcomes are relatively equal, where, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have a 10% chance of becoming a trillionaire and mm -hmm. a 90% chance of really? living in absolute abject poverty. And, and that's mm -hmm. the situation that we're in. So if mm -hmm. we, if we step back from our current circumstance, or if we can remove ourselves from the fact that 
we are in whatever situation we're in with whatever educational attainment. And if we can imagine the society that we want to create, it is absolutely one with more equal outcomes. So coming up against time here, I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch on this, but you were just on 60 Minutes within the past few weeks reporting on some of the the grim findings that are coming out of Flint in terms of the the school children, uh, the cognitive effects. Would you mind sharing what, what you found? Yeah. So, you know, from the moment that we recognized that we had this population level crisis and, and lead was part of it, but really it was a population level trauma. We had um, deaths from Legionnaire's disease and skin issues. So it was just kind of this holistic trauma atop of longstanding trauma and adversities in our city. Um, so from the moment that that really kind of came to light, my focus has, and, and with so many people in our city working hand, has been to make sure that we don't see the consequences of this crisis. So we have been um, putting into place interventions uh, driven by science that we know will help mitigate the impact of this crisis. You know, unfortunately, we can't take it away, but there's a lot that science tells us that we can do that will, um, you know, buffer the, the impact of, of this exposure. Um, and those are things like, you know, literacy support and home visiting programs and Medicaid expansion and trauma-informed care and, you know, living wage jobs and, you know, economic recovery and, and participatory democracy. The, you know, this goes on and on of what we've been trying to put into place in this very community-driven way. Um, we have also built a registry, uh, the Flint Registry. It's funded by the CDC to objectively share how, how the people are doing. I think that's the most common question I get asked every day. So like, how are, how's someone doing? How are the kids doing? And I can tell you how the kids I saw in clinic are doing. Um, and I was in clinic yesterday, still a pediatrician. The kids are absolutely adorable. <laughs> they inspire me. Um, but that's not what you want to know. You don't want to know how a couple of kids are doing. You want to know how the population is doing. And that's kind of uh, where we lead on, for example, the fields of epidemiology. Um, so we're starting to garner that data um, through this Flint registry. Um, thousands and thousands of people have already enrolled in the registry. Um, and we're starting to look at kind of those outcomes. We've also been able to um, offer children in the community another in-depth resource um, for neurodevelopmental assessments. And the early findings, um, which were highlighted um, in this 60 Minutes piece, uh, are from that Neurodevelopmental Center of Excellence, where for the first kind of couple hundred kids have gone through that. Um, and it shows significant deficits and concerns in kind of cognition and behavior and different developmental um, abilities. And um, there's a lot of nuances to that. You know, we, we need to see more children. Like we, we'd love to have a greater sample size to see how the more of, of the children are doing. These first few hundred kids that went through were probably some of the high risk kids because they needed to be assessed first. So, you know, you know that's a, that's a limitation. Um, so it, it's something that we're actively looking at. We're still in the very kind of early, early kind of phases of, of analysis. And the more folks that enroll in the registry, um, the better our ability will be to, to share um, the findings. And the findings are not static. Um, the findings change over time. Uh, if you understand the science of lead, uh, you also understand that sometimes they don't manifest um, later on in life. For example, you know, young children with lead exposure might not manifest until uh, late adulthood with high blood pressure or early dementia. Um, so that's why our work in Flint is long-term work. Uh, we hope that our registry remains in place, for example, for decades. We're working on its reauthorization right now in Congress. Um, but this is work that we have to do for the long term uh, to not only see how people are doing, but to continue to support folks um, who have been exposed to this crisis. Mm. Well, that's all 
<laughs> it doesn't surprise me that you're you're continuing to try and address the the crisis and the implications of it. But but you did report there, and the reason I wanted to get at this is mm-hmm. because it's a setup for a question related to it. But you, you reported that the percentage of third graders who were able to pass the state literacy test fell from 41% to just 10% in two years. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's from the um, state numbers, yes. Yeah, and and given these other aspects that you talked about, I mean, the the total, you know, the ways that lead changes the body and the mind and, and really is going to have just deteriorating effects on the lives of, of children who were exposed, unfortunately. Given that, and, and given the the number of lives that were impacted, um, I have a, a question. One of the tenets of environmental justice, mm-hmm. there's, there's four tenets. Mm-hmm. One is distributive justice, procedural mm-hmm. justice, social justice, and then the final one is restorative or corrective justice. Yeah. And this would be the idea of, you know, paying compensation for past yeah. wrongs. So given that and and given that not many people have have who were complicit in this have really been mm-hmm. um brought to justice yet, what restorative justice do you think the citizens of of Flint deserve? And do you yeah. think the second part is do you think anything will happen? Um absolutely there needs to be restorative justice and that's why um that's why this crisis isn't over. That's why the trauma is still raw because um, that that hasn't happened. The accountability and, and the restorative justice. Um, I can't tell you what that is. Um, you know, yeah, you definitely would ha- should ask the people of Flint. And I think even if you take a sample of 100 people, you're also going to hear 100 different things. Um, I think some folks would argue that, um, you know, healthcare access or, you know, early childhood programs or what have you are, um, you know, are good enough. Um, but I think some folks, it, it, it will never be enough uh, to compensate for this injury. I think this is where um, the civil cases play a role. So the civil, we talked about the criminal cases, which are unsettled, um, but the civil cases are, are seeking uh, damages. And that's also, those also have been resolved. And I'm, I'm hopeful that those include um, a little bit of compensation. I hope uh, they should uh, for the people who've been injured. Mm, well, I, I certainly hope so. And yeah, this is an issue I, I think about a lot, even in my field of conservation, where I, I think about even if the trends are going in the right direction, which largely they're not, we can never we can never give the lives back to those individuals yeah. that we lost. You know, the 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 poaching of thirty plus thousand elephants each year, even if we make progress on that, the yeah. the number of casualties here and the people of Flint yeah. are casually in this. They're yeah, they're the casualty, yeah. you know, that they're and it goes just beyond an individual. It goes to the family level, to the community yeah. level, to yeah. the city level. So I, I yeah. think that needs to be accounted for. No, I was just gonna say that I think it was last night the city of Ashland in maybe Kentucky or somewhere uh, passed a reparations law where they're creating a commission to look at what reparations can look like in that community. I think in North Carolina, um, and if you know they're not looking at you know paying descendants of slaves for kind of wrongdoing, but more about what how can we invest in the community and how can we remedy kind of wealth inequities. So I think there's creative ways to look at this concept of restorative justice. So I wanted to end on a encouraging and positive note because you you do in your in your book as well and uh, 
you you are very optimistic, which I, which I I appreciate. So you you talk about in your book how Flint largely has a reputation that's a, a sad reputation, you know, a kind of a, a once great city, a, a city of industry that has languished. And now it's largely known for this, this very unfortunate crisis. It once had the moniker of the unemployment capital of the mm-hmm. world, but you actually, you see a different side of Flint and your mm-hmm. residents there at the, the Hurley Center, you, you make mm-hmm. sure that they see the side too. You see a side of resilience. So you, mm-hmm. you write, what drew me to Flint and what kept me here is something else that I saw. It was the tenacity and endurance of its people, the passion of its strikers, and its legacy of steel-plated grit and resilience. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what message do you want to convey to our listeners about the kind of city that Flint is and, mm-hmm. and the people that make it up? Yeah, um, you know, when you read that sentence, uh, it just it warms me and it reminds me every day why I, I first fell in love with that city as a medical student and why I, I am continued to be in love with that city. It is a special place. Even our former lieutenant governor said it's a city that's hard not to fall in love with. Um, and I invite all, everybody to come visit, to come kind of see firsthand uh, what it means to be part of the city, to, to feel the energy um, and that, like I said, that resilience, that pride, that loyalty. Um, and I think a lot of it is really it captured in, in the logo for our registry. So um, like I said earlier, all of our work is really in this, done in this really community participatory way. And we had a group of parents who we work with, um, our, our group of parent partners, who helped us kind of come up with the logo of, of this Flint registry. And they suggested the Sankofa bird. And it's this mythical African bird from, from Ghana that is flying forward, yet looking back and holding an egg in its mouth. And it is symbolic of all of our work. It's all about pushing ahead. And that's what Flint does. We push ahead. Yet we never forget the past. We're, we will never forget kind of the injustices of, of the past, the good and the bad. Um, and the egg in the mouth is how we are driven by our children and the youth and, and making really a better place for them. Um, so that's kind of it reminds me so much of the city and it really reminds me of all of our work, that our, our work is about what's ahead of us, yet not doing what we so often do in this country, which is closing our eyes to the past, be it good, the good parts or the bad parts. And as a pediatrician, my favorite part is, is prioritizing the children. Um, so that's what I want people to, to know of Flint, to remember of Flint is once again, not this, not this crisis that happened, not those pictures of brown water, but really what we were able to do next. Um, and that is the story that I get to spend my every day working on is, is this kind of next chapter in our recovery that isn't just helping the city of Flint, but that is really shining a spotlight on, on communities and children all over this country. Mm, that's beautiful. And a, a beautiful note to end on, Dr. Mona. Well, I mean this so sincerely, I couldn't mean this more sincerely. You are such an inspiration to me and to everyone who is familiar with your story. I mean, the amount of bravery that you you show and the commitment to helping others, the the commitment or the the amount that one person can do when, as you said, they set their mind to it and they care a whole lot is truly inspiring. And one thing we didn't capture in this in this conversation in this very political moment around immigration is the fact that your your family is an immigrant family. Are are you a first generation or second generation immigrant? Yeah, uh first generation. I was I was not born here, so first generation. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this country, I I believe I 100% there is not a single 
doubt there that this country is better for having representative of, of all people mm-hmm. across the world. And, and, you know, the message of Liberty that at, at Ellis Island, you know, mm-hmm. the re- receptivity that we have always embodied up until the last four years of welcoming people from everywhere. And you are totally emblematic of that and the amount of good that you've done. So I hope people also recognize Join the All Things Connected podcast. There's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode. Or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. Your support is much appreciated.